It's great to be back with you. It was two and a half years ago, time has flown, since I was last here, so I didn't scare you off, so that's, that's a good thing, um, by this Scottish lilting accent. Um, so thank you so much. Also, thank you uh, for joining with us as an organization on this day particularly. So just to put it in a bit of perspective, the video that you uh, had just seen, not Gary's message, but the one before that on Freedom Sunday, it had mentioned somewhere around 2,000 churches in 17 countries around the world. Well, that was last year. This year, um, I'm really happy to report that we've actually got 5,000 churches internationally from 50 nations around the world who on this day are taking the, the cries of the poor and the oppressed and the vulnerable and the exploited uh, to God in prayer and in worship uh, to advocate for them. And so you are joining with millions of other uh, followers of Jesus uh, to lift up the poor and oppressed, and that's a really exciting, exciting thing. And you're joining with about 65 other churches across Canada uh, on this day uh, to highlight some of the uh, issues that I'll be sharing with uh, later on uh, as I share. So thanks so much for doing that and the way that you have formed this uh, service, how the, the songs and what we've said and prayed it just all comes together uh, so well. So what is injustice? Well, I'm from Scotland, I'm from the United Kingdom, and there are some unspoken rules with regards queuing or lining up. Anyone with me on this? So in Scotland, um, say you are in a store and uh, you have your groceries with you uh, and you're lining up and it's orderly, it's formed, everyone knows their position, someone will be in position one, someone will be in position 12, but it's all good. You know that at some point, you're going to get to the front and to pay for your groceries. Well, what happens when Sally is in a rush and she just wants to jump in and she takes your spot, but being the polite Brit, you don't say a word, you just, uh, Get in that place. Sally, the line jumper, has just got in front of me. Anyone experienced that here in Canada? Please say it's not just me. Please? <laughs> okay. Is that the sort of injustice that we are talking about? Well, it's not. That's not the sort of injustice that we see in Scripture that God calls us to act upon. You see, when the Bible talks about injustice, it's not talking about Sally, the line jumper, or someone else just jumping in in front of us or cutting you off at the red light or, you know, or wanting to make, you're wanting to make your turn and you've been cut off. That's not the sort of injustice Scripture talks about. You see, when the Bible talks about injustice, it is referencing a very specific kind of sin. Injustice is the abuse of power to take from others the good things that God intends for them. So let me repeat that. Injustice is the abuse of power to take from others the good things that God intends for them. Their life, 
their dignity, and the fruits of their love and of their labor. The book of Ecclesiastes gives us a sample and painful picture of injustice. In Ecclesiastes 4 verse 1, we read these words. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power, power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. That is the biblical picture of injustice. This is the picture of someone who has power oppressing someone who does not. This is someone who has, who is taking from another who has no power, no authority. We see this in the story of King David. If you're familiar with scripture at all and you're familiar with the story of King David, the beloved poet king of Israel. He wakes up one morning as king and uh, he sees a woman across the rooftops. You know, I don't know how far away, but he could see her. And he decides from his place of power, he wants her. So he abuses his kingly authority and takes Bathsheba, that was her name, Bathsheba for himself. Then what he does, he tries to cover up this abuse of power by getting rid of her husband, having him purposefully murdered in war. When the prophet Nathan confronts David, and you can read this story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he confronts the king primarily on his abuse of power. That is the root of injustice, this abuse of power. We could say that these ancient texts and these stories, um, therefore then, they don't really relate to now. That we can imagine somehow our world is a little different, less brutal, it's more just. I mean, in Canada, we've got a working justice system. But my connection with International Justice Mission, who I represent here today, has helped me understand that simply that's not true. Ecclesiastes that I read from and David's story are just as current in our world today as they were thousands of years ago. So here's a few statistics for you this morning. According to the Global Slavery Index and the International Labour Organization, there are over 40 million people in the world who currently lives, live as slaves. 40 million. That's more people than were trafficked through the Atlantic slave trade. 40 million. What's the current population of Canada? Yeah, it's about 36, 37 million. Wow, 40 million people. The UN also estimate that 4 billion people, in fact, 
all of the world's poor live outside of the protection of the law. So what do I mean by that? Well, if something were to happen to me in, you know, as I leave the church uh, this morning and I get beaten up and robbed, well, there are steps in place where I could contact the police, they would take a statement from me, and they would investigate the crime. In the developing world, it doesn't happen for a variety of reasons. One, the poor don't trust the police. They don't trust them. Secondly, there's corruption at so many levels, even if you were to report a crime, the chances are your crime will not be investigated properly and you'll never see justice. So four billion of the world's poor, all of the world's poor, live outside of the protection of the law. It's also estimated by UNICEF that two million children are currently exploited in commercial trafficking. Two million children. How on earth is this possible? How is it possible that 40 million people could be living under the weight, under the oppression of slavery, and we don't know about it? There are many people out there that say slavery has ended. Isn't slavery something from our history books? Didn't William Wilberforce do something about that? I can assure you, sadly, as we've read and heard Gowrie's story and and heard the prayers, that slavery is still rampant in this world. It might not be part of our world. It might not be part of the world of your network and your spheres of influence and your friends and family. But for Gowrie and for millions of others, that's their story. That's their story every day. You know, when Gowrie and her husband, Kumar, were expecting their second child, they needed money for her medical expenses. He was working in a woodcutting business and in a brick kiln, and he asked his boss uh, to borrow 25,000 rupees. So that's just less than 600 Canadian dollars for Gowrie's medical expenses. The owner refused to accept any repayment other than manual labor. So the young couple agreed to work at the business until they eliminated their debt. And that's when the nightmare of forced labor and bonded slavery began for Gowrie and Kumar. Because their boss was cruel. As Gowrie shared herself, he verbally abused them, physically abused them. And when Gowrie tried to speak up for better working conditions, she was literally tied up in a cowshed for an entire day and forced to watch her husband being beaten. This is the reality of the world's poor. Back in May, I had the privilege of going to Calcutta to see our work, to see what was going on there with trafficked young girls. And I sat across the table, I had dinner with a young girl called Shefali. Shefali was a young girl who was from a poor village in North, uh, North Bengal, Northwest Bengal. And uh, 
she had been duped into coming to Calcutta for a cleaning job, a job that would provide her opportunity, it would give her a wage, she would be able to send her money back that she was getting from this cleaning job in the city. She could send that money back to her poor parents and they would have a better life. Well, she never received that job. She was duped into a false job and she was trafficked and called to service predators in a brothel. In the pew in front of me, I could see that someone had uh, inscribed their name. I don't know if it was a young person or someone just couldn't listen to Wes anymore and they inscribed their name. Highly possible, he says, but they inscribed their name on their pew. For Shefali, she inscribed her name on the wall because she didn't want to forget who she was. That was the power of being abused, being enslaved. Not inscribing your name for fun, but inscribing your name because you've lost all dignity and hope. What do we do with that kind of information? How do we respond as a church, as a people of God? How do we respond to the story of Gauri and Shefali? And the stories of millions of others, how do we respond to such injustice? I would say, I would posit the best place to start would be to ask the question, how does God feel all about this? How does he feel? And as it turns out, the answer to the question is pretty straightforward. One place we could go to find the answer is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 20. And as I, as I continue to speak here, you can turn to that in your, your Bible and you can follow along. In this chapter, uh, chapter 4, Luke 4, this is the very point at which Jesus transitions from private life to a public life of ministry. He's declaring to the people This is who I am and this is what I am all about. This is why I am here. It's a crucial moment where Jesus decides to signal with his ministry what the kingdom of God, what his kingdom is all about. And it reads almost like a movie script. It's that powerful. So 4.14, then Jesus filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. This is a place where he was from. He returns to Galilee, Galilee, and reports about him spread through all the surrounding country. So people are talking. Jesus is back. He's back in town. What's he going to say? Well, he began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, the place of his birth, where he had been brought up. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good 
news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. That's a really powerful passage. In this synagogue, Jesus does what history counts as one of the most, I don't know, I can think of a better word, rock star things of all time that he was doing here. This is the moment he moves from the private to the public. This is the moment where he declares, declares, this is who I am. This is what I am all about. He announces who he is, not by sending out a press release or starting a mass email to all of his friends, but rather by standing up and reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And not just any passage from Isaiah, he chooses a reading that foretells who he is. It's a prophetic voice from Isaiah. This was Jesus announcing via the sacred words of Isaiah's prophecy that in this moment, in this synagogue, in this place of Nazareth, you are witnesses to the Messiah in your midst, the God made flesh, the God who moved into the neighborhood. You are seeing him right now. And why am I here? To bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and let the oppressed go free. I'm here for you, Gauri. I'm here in this place for Shefali. I'm here for the 12 million others who are currently enslaved. I'm here for the 40 million other people in this world who are currently enslaved, including the 2 million children. I am here declaring it in Nazareth now for them in the future. That's why I'm here. One way this passage has been understood is that Jesus' mission was about freeing us from sin. He brings good news to those who are poor in spirit. He proclaims freedom to us who are held captive to sin. He heals us who are blinded by our sin. He sets us free from the oppression and sin caused in our lives. Freedom from shame, from alcohol, from addiction, from eating disorders, from low self-esteem. Freedom, freedom from all those things. And it's true. He has come for those things. And it's good news for all of us here today, right? That's good news for you and I. But if we stop there, I would argue that we are missing out on the deeper truth that Jesus is proclaiming. Jesus is declaring himself as the prophet, as the priest, the king, the Messiah, whose mission is not just to rescue people from spiritual bondage, not just to offer spiritual freedom, but real freedom, real freedom. 
Jesus is declaring the very, very good news that he's offering freedom from all that seek to imprison those he loves. And this proclamation of Jesus extends to people like Gauri and like Shafali, those who are physically imprisoned by other people. And this is in fact how my friends and colleagues at IGM have come to understand the mission of Jesus. IGM was founded more than 20 years ago to embody this very call of Jesus for real people who are enslaved. And Gowrie's story isn't finished. Gowrie's story of rescue that I read moments ago isn't finished. You see, while Gowrie was still recovering, and nearly 10 years after she and her family were first enslaved for $600, IGM made contact with the families in Gowrie's facility while investigating allegations of slavery there, and then quickly mobilized after learning about her condition. We helped government officials and police rescue her and 22 others a few days later. The laborers were to be free from the owners, but they were still terrified to tell the officials about the abuse that they had suffered. It was only Gowrie in the midst of that that stood up and spoke, and she encouraged all the people to tell the police everything the owner had done to them, saying, we've waited long enough, we've had enough, and it's time to tell the truth. That's a powerful story of rescue and restoration. And this story of rescue is amazing, but it can only sometimes seem like a drop in the bucket as we think about 40 million others who are enslaved, 12 million in India. But I can assure you it's not, it isn't. Because the scope of what we and IGM are doing together grows every day. IGM consists of a little over 900 Christian lawyers, criminal investigators, trauma, social workers, pastors, graphic designers, and really every job that you can think of, who work in nearly 20 communities throughout Africa, Latin America, South and Southeast Asia, to live out this call of being bearers of good news and justice to this broken world. We're not just seeing real freedom for individuals caught in slavery, we're seeing real freedom for whole cities, and in fact, whole countries. IGM did a project in the city of Cebu in the Philippines to combat trafficking of minors, trafficking of children. And after five years of comprehensively working with all different stakeholders from government officials and law enforcement agencies and the public justice system, we were able to confirm a 79% reduction in minors being trafficked for the purposes of predators from the West. This is huge. This is massive. This is good news. 
the Filipino government then decided to scale this strategy to several other metropolitan areas. And by the grace of God, in the span of just a decade or two, we can categorically say that we have seen nearly the eradication of trafficking of minors in the Philippines for the purposes of Western predators. And then Cambodia, a country that used to be considered ground zero for, for um, people who would travel to exploit young people. A decade from 2004 to 2015 of collaboration between Cambodian leaders and police and courts and social services and other NGO communities. We've seen a dramatic shift and change for Cambodia's children. This is good news for our broken world. This is good news for you and I. Brings us back to us though, you and me. What can we actually do in this church community as Dunbar Heights, what can we actually do to make a difference in this world? Because if you're like me, I start to consider the massive need and the amazing complex solution that IGM has come up with, and I can feel totally stifled. Like I don't know where to begin because the magnitude is so huge and massive. And it's at times like these I often think through the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe you can recall it from the times that you've read that story or hearken back to if you were part of a church community that had a Sunday school. Jesus had gone off to a remote location to teach and people are loving what he has to say, as you can only imagine they would. And Jesus teaches all day long, sharing stories of the, the goodness of God and his grace and his mercy. And now it's late in the day and people have been hanging around and there's no food. And people could get hangry, right? Are you, are you, did you guys get hangry? You, you hear what I'm saying? And the voices of reason, the apostles come to Jesus and they inform him of the situation. You say, Jesus, just stop teaching, send the people home and they can get something to eat. And how does Jesus reply? How does he reply? Why don't you guys feed them? 5,000. I'm sorry, what, what did you say, Jesus? Why don't, why don't you feed them? The apostles, the ever so patient apostles, give it another go. Jesus, it's nice that you want us to feed them and all, but there's 5,000 or at least 5,000 of them um, and it would take half a year's wage, they're justifying it, it would take half a year's wage just to feed them all and we don't have that kind of cash on us. And even if we did have that much money, we're in a remote location and there's not something like a Costco or whatever for 100 miles, so it's back to you. What, what would you have us do? Isn't this precisely the kind of situation that we find ourselves in today? We're trying to learn and to love like Jesus, and Jesus has put a seemingly impossible task in front of us, the need of 40 million slaves, 
And we're thinking, my goodness, Jesus, ending slavery is a nice idea, but frankly, we don't have what it takes, so it's back to you, Jesus. It's important to note that what Jesus does when the apostles point out the impossibility of there being any practical solution, he simply asks two questions. And these are important questions for you and I to ask today. The first question he asks of the apostles, well, what do you have? What do you have? At which point the apostles look in their cassock or whatever they were wearing and they look around and they see a little boy and they see a little boy with a lunch of five barley loaves and two fish. Yet while that little lunch was hardly enough to feed the boy, this is what the apostles put forward to address the need of 5,000 people. And Andrew, one of the apostles, being very logical, he says, what are these things among so many? But then what does Jesus say? He asks the second question. Will you give it to me? What do you have? And will you give it to me? Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to take responsibility for this miracle. All he's asking from this little boy and all he's asking from you and I is that we would come forward in obedience with what we have and trust him for the miracle. Whatever you have, bring it forward and trust him to do the miracle. And what does he do in that place? He feeds 5,000. And then some. That's the power of Jesus. That's the power of Jesus when we think of the magnitude of 40 million people still living in slavery today. Each of us have something to give. Your life your resources, your skills, your prayers. Bring it to Jesus and let Jesus do the miracle. So I want to issue a very specific challenge this morning. That is to offer up your pack lunch, as it were. Offer up what you have. And I want to challenge you as a church community to join with me and my staff and other churches around this world to be bold on the mission, to be bold on the mission that we would say that in our lifetime, we will see the end of slavery and that we will pray towards that end, that we would be willing, Dunbar Heights, that we would be willing to be a community committed to prayer, to pray for justice, to pray until all are free, free from slavery, from oppression, and from violence, free to be children, free to be women, free to be men, and free to be all that we have been created to be in God's image. And you and I can be part of the solution. You and I can be part of this miracle, like that young boy who probably just turned up to listen to more stories from Jesus. And here he was, part of this incredible, incredible story that we are still reading and being encouraged about this day, 2,000 years later. 
Wouldn't it be incredible to give what you have this day and to bring it to Jesus and to be part of a miracle that you never thought was possible? That would be amazing. Matthew 25 talks about Jesus in these terms. When Jesus is talking about himself when he has moved from his private ministry to his public ministry, he challenges people to say, and when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. He's talking about the poor. When I was, when I was poor, when I was thirsty and hungry, you gave me th- something to eat and drink. When I was in prison, you came and visit, visited me. And Jesus is saying in that passage in Matthew 25 that somehow, in some wonderful way, Jesus is locating himself with the world's poor. That as you serve the world's poor, you are somehow miraculously serving Jesus, the one who has moved into the neighborhood. So when you pray for the poor, for the marginalized and the oppressed, that somehow that you are praying for Jesus to be revealed in some wonderful way. Jesus locates himself with the poor, that somehow, incredibly then, if he's locating himself with the poor, he knows their cries. He hears their cries for freedom. We sang this morning um, the hymn, Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then we sang the refrain, my chains fell off, I'm now free. My chains fell off. For Shefali, that young girl who I met in May of this year, just a few months ago, part of the abuse that she endured was that she was literally chained to a bed. A story and a song like Amazing Grace for me now has a whole new meaning. Her chains fell off and now she is free. Free to be the woman God has created her to be. So church, I encourage you this day to join with us in prayer, to join with us in your skills and resources to see an end to slavery in our lifetime. Because like Jesus, you and I, we're here to bring good news to the poor, freedom for the captives. I'm gonna be sticking around the service. You probably came in today and you saw a table of information. I would love to speak with you and engage with you. We have a variety of ways that um, you can be involved in the story of IGM and be involved in the story of the millions of others who are impre- uh, oppressed and to pray for them. And I would be glad of the opportunity to, to speak with you at the end of the service. So thank you so much. May God continue to work in this community, continue to work in your hearts as you figure out what it means to serve the poor and the oppressed, those who live on the margins, even within uh, this community here, what it means to serve those who have who have less than what you have. Let us pray together.